Hey everyone, and welcome to another exciting episode of Battle of the Atom. This is the internet's, uh, let's call it uh, third most popular X-Men podcast, where we rank every story from A to Z. I'm Zach, and with me this week is a very special guest. You may know her work from the podcast Bitches on Comics and just a bunch of other places around the web. I've really admired her stuff for a while now, and we're excited to have her. It's uh, Sarah Century. Sarah, how are you doing today? I'm doing so good, and I'm so excited to talk about the X-Men. They are a topic that I will say I've thought about a lot. (laughs) But it's, uh, no, it's exciting. So uh, for folks who uh, may not be familiar with you, why don't you tell uh, everyone a little bit about yourself? Yeah, um, I guess I started writing because I was a zinester. I was a punk kid, so I got into doing a bunch of zines. uh, And I started writing a lot about uh, film and queer film. And obviously there just aren't a lot of people who are talking about that stuff, or there certainly weren't at the time. Um, And it just kind of developed from there, I guess. I I kind of started pitching all over the place. So now I'm pitching all over the place to this very day and (laughs) appearing in places like Bustle, Star Trek.com, like Sci-Fi Fangirls, like just kind of all over the place these days. Now, that's that's good. I know I think I first became aware of your stuff on some of your Sci-Fi Fangirls work and was really, really enjoyed a lot of the stuff. So... Uh, it's, it's exciting that we got you on, and I think we've got you on to talk about some real interesting stories here. Yes. I'm so excited. I love these stories. <laughs> well, that's good. <laughs> so, uh, you know who else? I don't know if he might love these stories or not, because he just gave me a, uh, a high-level prompt about leadership in the X-Men. <laughs> uh, and I decided to spin on this because, A, wanted to talk about our first story, uh, which is one of my favorites, and then that led to, well, you know what, as as my co-host Adam always says, all the best X-Men are women, and I figured, mm-hmm. well, shoot, let's just do, let's just talk about the awesome female leaders of the X-Men, because they're really good. Yeah. Uh, so I want to thank uh, Saad Althani. Saad went over to patreon.com slash Xavier Files. He reached deep down into his pocketbook, uh, wrote us a check every month, and said, hey, uh, I'd like to support this show, and in return... We, we talk about episodes about things he likes sometimes. I mean, I think that's a fair trade. Yeah. If you want to be like him, head on over to patreon.com slash Files. It's fun. But until then, uh, Sarah, we're going to talk about Uncanny X-Men 201. Yes. The Duel. Yes. I love this issue. <laughs> now, this one is deep in Chris Claremont's run, uh, roughly about halfway through it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Rick Leonardi jumps in on pencils for this one. Uh, Will Sportacio's on inks, and uh, Glennis Oliver's doing the colors here. Uh, this is this is kind of a landmark issue for the X Men. Uh, I guess my, my first question is, what, what, what do you think about this one? What 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 do you like about this one, Sarah? Because oh. this is the one where you know Cyclops uh, fights Storm. Yes, um, just so good. It's it's 
prime storm era, in my opinion. This is my favorite era. It's kind of right after life death from what I remember. And it's going into her whole, like, you know, her whole time as the leader of the X-Men. And so this to me is just such a pivotal issue. And there's so, so many X threads going on. And I just like, I just got finished rereading it and I've read it, you know, again and again, much the same as you from what I understand. And I just thought that it was so good. Uh, just so much going on. The amount of stuff that they pack in. Uh, really upset about Cyclops and Madeline's relationship in this. <laughs> oh, yeah. That was rough. It's a, I'll tell you, it's interesting. So, as legend has it, Claremont was not aware of the plans for X-Factor as he was releasing this issue. Ah, uh, yeah. Which is wild when you read it because... You know, they're just having marital issues. And mm-hmm. Madeline is pretty well in the right here saying, hey, I just gave birth on a kitchen floor uh, while you were hanging out in Paris with your friends. Yeah. So, dude, you're going to have to make a decision between being a dad to this kid or being an X-Man. And that's a big choice for Scott, who's goes, lived his life as an X-Man. Yeah, he has such a cheap shot where uh, she says you know, I also have my own career. And he says, well, I thought that that all changed whenever you had a kid. And it's like, whoa, buddy, like, yikes. That is like maybe one of the most messed up things I've ever read Cyclops say. And that's kind of saying a lot because he's not always the best people person. Um, No. (laughs) But it was so interesting to me because we're talking about leadership of the X-Men. And to me, one of the most fascinating things is we look at Storm in this And she's so hyper aware of everything that's going on around her. She's like, Madeline, what's the matter? You know, and goes to Madeline and talks to her and then uh, gives them her loft so that they can have their like kind of, you know, Cyclops not being a very nice guy kind of conversation. And then he like she goes up and confronts the situation and is like, listen, I hear you arguing and we're going to have to make a choice. So let's fight it out. (laughs) It's like, whoa. Which is a very X-Men way to solve a problem. Absolutely. And a very Storm way to solve a problem at this point. This is how she gains leadership is just by dueling people. (laughs) She's like, I'll fight it. Storm's a lot of things. And one of them is someone who's just going to punch you until you let her be in charge. And I respect that about her. A hundred percent. Because right now... Right now, Nightcrawler had been leading the X-Men uh, pretty <laughs> unsuccessfully, <Yeah. laughs> to be honest. <laughs> he did, he did a bad job on that one. Mm-hmm. Uh, because Storm, she didn't have her powers at this point in continuity. This is after she had gotten them taken away. Yes. And this is a big statement uh, to anyone who was you know, nervous about that, saying, Oh no, Storm's, Storm's still a badass. She still runs the X-Men, and you all got to be respected, you know, respectful of her. Yeah, it was so interesting that she, I think I remember somebody saying, can you imagine if today somebody said, hey, we're going to take away Storm's powers, like Twitter would like lose its mind. The discourse would not be good. But this is interesting to me because they take away her powers and then they just use that as a way to show her as powerful as she is, right? So they take away her powers, but it isn't, it's like a much more effective way of telling her story. It was just fascinating to me because I think that, you know, obviously we have those iconic images of Storm where she's like lightning everywhere, hair is going wild, you know, white eyes, like 
just you know looks like like looks like a goddess frankly but uh it's so interesting to be able to watch this part of her where you're just seeing her you know every person is probably like oh no now storm's gonna leave the x-men and storm has no intention of leaving the x-men storm to me is one of the hardest characters in comics to write yeah i think a lot of people would agree (laughs) i she has so many different things going on with her she is I mean, part of it is just so much comics built up on her, but uh-huh. it was all built up by one guy right? in one story, and he figured it out. And to this day, I'm struggling to think of anyone who writes Storm half as well as Claremont does. Yeah. And even, even later day Claremont, like, he at least gets what Storm's deal is. There's a weird balance between being, you know, a leader and a goddess and a thief punk yeah. and all of these different things that she is. It's... It's great, and this is one of the best showcases of that because Storm has to be the leader of a team of mutants without her mutant powers. She has to confront all of these people uh, who, you know, may have been positioned as in charge in the leadership and say, nope, I'm taking charge now. And it's so good to see. This fight is great. The opening sequence uh, is fascinating and beautiful. There's a there's a really nice scene with... Uh, Rachel holding a baby Nathan Christopher Summers. That's so cute. And with Kitty is just like, you two are going to be married someday, but a lot of time has passed and that hasn't happened yet. Yeah. uh, (laughs) That's a whole nother bag of words. Yeah. That's its own episode. Uh, We've had that episode. It's it's something else. (laughs) Uh, But there's a lot there. There's, there's that iconic scene where they're the X-Men are playing baseball and Rogue has to go catch a fastball (laughs) and gives Ronald Reagan's Air Force One a kiss, Uh uh, which is just kind of delightful to see. It is, yeah. This is, it's a weird balance between a nice, playful, quiet issue of X-Men and then tacked on to the end is this big game-changing moment. Yeah, it's so fascinating because there's so many character beats in it that just are all really good. Like, you know, they just seem so seamless in a way. And another thing I thought was so interesting about Storm's leadership here is that she sees that Cyclops is flailing. She doesn't let him get away with anything. Like, she's not going to just step aside. But the way that she takes him out is by making sure that he is disarmed. Like, she doesn't mm-hmm. hurt him at all through this entire thing. She just takes his visor. And that's all she's trying to do through the entire thing. And he keeps being like, why can't I guess what she's going to do? Like, what is she trying to do? And it's just like, because Cyclops is trying so hard to look at this in a tactical way. And Storm is like, I just want to do this the safest way I possibly can. Like, hurting him the least. Because she knows she's going to win even in the beginning. So I just think that all of that is so interesting. This is like 100% one of my favorite Storm stories ever. Of course, she mops the floor with him, um, but in the gentlest way that she possibly could. So we look at this as being one of those times when Storm is such a badass, you know? And then it's also one of the times when she's at her very most gentle. And I think that those are the things, you know, when you say, I think Storm is a difficult character for people to understand. I think it's because they can never understand that merge of her being an utter badass and then also being, you know, like somebody who's so gentle. I think you are absolutely right. It's it's what makes Storm one of the best characters in comics. Yeah, I absolutely agree. Now, uh, we've, we've talked a bit about this story, and it's very good. Uh, also very good are 
some of the other stories on this list. <laughs> uh, there are 306 discrete units of X-Men on this list right now. The number one story is Dark Phoenix Saga. The number 100 story is House of M. The 200 story is Generation X 10 and 11 Death Whale or that time that they fought Omega Red <laughs> and it was pretty good. Uh and then number 306 is the Draco, which is bad and I hate it. Yes. <laughs> uh, I hate it a lot. It's hard. This is, this is definitely in that top chunk. Honestly, I think we got number 50 on this list is The Righteous Return of Alan Davis from Excalibur. Ooh, yeah. And I think this is better than that. Yeah, it's, it's rough to look at this list because I'm looking like number 29 is Generation X volume, you know, one, one through three. And that's such an incredible part of the X-Men um, and it was so impactful. And then you look at like new mutants, number 21, the slumber party, but it's just like, so it's real good. It's so good. And it's just like, but almost, I think that this is gotta be like top 20 for sure, because it's so, so good. And it's such a quintessential storm story. Here's where I'm stuck. I, I think I agree. Cause I think I'm definitely going to say, Top 25, because number 25 right now is Life, Death 2. Ah, it's such a brutal decision. It is. This is this is the curse that we have, is finding which of these very good stories yeah. uh, works better. Mm-hmm. I think this works better than Life, Death 2. I like yeah. this better than The Brood Saga. Mm-hmm. I would struggle to put it above uh, Nightcrawler 1 through 4, the Cockrum uh, series where he fights pirates. Yeah, such a different tone for those two stories. I'll tell you where I'm stuck is comparing this to 205 Wounded Wolf, the Barry Windsor Smith story yeah. where uh, uh, Wolverine protects Katie Power from the from the Reavers. Oh my god, that is such a touching, beautiful story. And it's like, you know, just a couple of issues later. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this was a good era for X-Men. Yeah, this is all like, so brutal. Um, I don't know. I think I would still put it above Wounded Wolf just because it's like, it's that, it has, uh, it's so difficult, but it has all of those elements that we love so much of like every single X-Men like subplot that's happening all at the Mm -hmm. same time. And then just, you know, it's such a storm showcase. And it's also such a showcase of Scott in a way, because this is where we start to see him falter a little bit inside. And that to me... You know, he does. He acts like a jerk for a really long time after this, but also he does. You yes. know, but like this is the time when we start to be like, oh, there's something like wrong with him. You know, like he's actually really struggling and doesn't have a way of communicating that. I guess. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I guess I'd have to put it like it's like neck and neck with Wounded Wolf though, because I love that story. Like uh, <laughs> so painful. Here's, here's what I say. Mm-hmm. I think from a storytelling perspective, I agree with you 100%. Mm-hmm. Can I tell you the biggest difference for me? Yeah. Wounded Wolf got that Barry Windsor Smith art. That's true. And Barry Windsor Smith is gorgeous. Oh, Rick Leonardo. Rick Leonardo's great. Good. Yeah, really good. You're right. You're right. You're right. All right. All right. I'll, I'll concede this one. I think that you're right. Well, then this will be our new number 24 on the list. Uncanny X-Men 201, The Duel. <laughs> Uh, next on our list, we are going to uh, we are going to jump a bit into the future to a very different leader of the X Men. <laughs> uh, th- this is coming to us 
from uh, the year of 2006, or not 2006, excuse me, 1996, <laughs> very different times. Uh, it is Generation X 18 and 19 for the sake of the children. Uh, this was written by professional comic book writer Scott Lobdell uh, with pencils by Chris Bocciolo. Uh Mark Buckingham is his only inker on this one. Uh, and uh, Steve Bucolato does our colors here. Uh, Sarah, this one was your pick. Why did this come to mind when we were brainstorming stories for this episode? Well, when we're talking about leadership, I think we had a hard time. There was a few Danny Moonstar stories. There was a couple of Danny Moonstar or <laughs> Danny Moonstar stories that uh, you had already done on the podcast, and I think that if we're talking about leadership, you know, we want to put like Danny in there, we want to put Rogue in there, uh, but then it was like you know, or Emma, you know, and they're all such great leaders. So I, and I have a hundred percent opposite of the spectrum feelings on every single one of them, but like in a good way. Um, Mm -hmm. But whenever I think about Emma, this was kind of the place where I remember reading as a young and we were all waiting for Emma to turn again, right? Like this was kind Mm -hmm. of, you know, nineties after the phalanx era, of course, but like, you know, she had mostly been at this time just a straight up villain. Sure, absolutely. We were all kind of waiting for her to like snap. And I like this story so much because she does snap. <laughs> like, but she does it in a very Emma Frost way and also in a very compassionate way, as strange as that is, considering, you know, what her actions are here. So I think that like when we think about Emma Frost, we think about. Someone who is very means to an end, somebody who will do what she considers to be the right thing, which is always very Mm -hmm. nebulous (laughs) for our girl Emma. But I think also it's somebody who sometimes is a little bit lost. And when she starts to feel even a little bit compromised emotionally, that fear of losing her students comes right back up. And so I think that it has to be... So, yeah, basically with this, I just think that this is a time where we see Emma feel emotionally compromised and her first thought is, by any means necessary, I'm going to protect these children. She makes a bad decision, but everyone forgives her. She does. So, uh, Emma, for those who haven't read this story, and it was weird, going through this, I realized I had thought I had read all of Generation X. Mm -hmm. Somehow, I just didn't have these issues. Oh, cool. This was your first time reading it. What did you think this of the art? It's time. beautiful, right? Oh, oh, I am I am a noted Chris uh, Bachelor lover. I got to meet him this uh, earlier this year at a convention, uh, and it was an absolute joy. Yeah. Uh, and so, yeah, I, I was all for this because he's going all out. Yeah. This is very much, I believe this is post uh, him doing the Death miniseries. This is him right after doing uh what is it, the age of apocalypse stuff mm-hmm. uh this is him really doing what i think is his peak 90s work yeah. in stuff like this he's very detailed uh very tight very expressive uh and that works really well for me bachelor's i've got a chris bachelor poster not uh not 10 feet away from me uh, <laughs> so i'm it 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 is only the uncanny 600 cover but <laughs> You know what? That's fine. That's what they had at the poster store. Yes. he. And by poster store, I mean a discount box at a comic book shop. <laughs> he completely goes off here. 
like I am still stunned. I looked through it again, you know, just a couple of hours ago and was just, you know, once again blown away. I remember reading this as, you know, a very young kid, or I mean, I was probably like 15 or something. And mm-hmm. uh, yeah, God, it was it was such a brilliant two-part issue or story because it's like, you know, Onslaught is going on during this and Onslaught was <laughs> varying degrees of good and bad. Um, <laughs> yes, let's let's say yes. Yeah. That's a that's a whole other show. Yes. yes, once again, its own podcast, like just hashing out onslaught feelings. But um, yeah, I just thought whenever I was reading this as a kid, this was definitely the time when I think not only did Emma fully click for me, but a lot of the other characters in this click too. I think Jubilee comes across really well, and her like Emma's interactions. <laughs> first of all. She just kicks Banshee out of the plane, which I think is, like, hilarious. Like, she's kind of hijacking the plane that all of her students are on and taking them to Canada. Yeah, Banshee get in a fight. Yeah, and she just kicks him out. (laughs) Yeah, she takes him him to not, I don't know, their summer, her Frost summer home or something up in Canada. And hijinks ensue because she'd been letting Toad live there for a little bit. Yeah, that's so strange. And that's another weird moment of, like, her strange compassion that she has. Because she doesn't have to do that. Um, no. And, like, you know, Toad's Toad's a real weird guy. So <laughs> you can understand if maybe she didn't want to do that. But he's even weirder in this oh, yeah. one. Yeah, yeah. Where she convinces him that he can talk to Toads, yep. but he can't. Oh, I know. Yeah, that's maybe not the best therapy, Emma. Um. <laughs> well, look, Emma Frost makes choices in her life, and they probably aren't always the most morally black and white choices. It's, it's definitely like, well, this is why you're not a therapist, because you'd have been fired. But <laughs> like this and plus like dressing up like Scott's <laughs> wife, like that's look, these are that all would, problems. Again, Emma, lover to death. People, people <laughs> have accused me of not liking Emma Frost, which is a wild statement to make. Yeah. Emma does make decisions that may not be the healthiest, which is what makes her an interesting character. That's also what makes her a really good match for Cyclops. <laughs> um, this is true. This is true. <laughs> so, yeah, I don't know. This this two-parter, I think, is so interesting because there's so much about Emma in it. And her interactions with Monet, I think, are so interesting, too. Because Monet is the person who is like, hey, this is, like, pretty wild. <laughs> I think we need to get back on course you know like this is messed up and so their conversations with each other to me you know that it is Monet who is the one who talks her down from it I think is very important because they've had kind of an adversarial relationship mm-hmm. which which makes sense they are two very strong uh strong people strong-willed people who whew, there's a reason why they made a good pairing because they do not get along but they have this secret empathy for each other. And I think that that's what mm-hmm. happens here is you see Monet being so much more gentle than she usually is with Emma and just being like, I know you're trying to protect us. You're just doing like a terrible job of it because you're completely taking away our resources. And then, you know, in our autonomy. And then Emma turns around and says almost the same thing to Toad. You know, was it OK whenever Magneto lorded over you and now you're trying to do it to others? And I think that that was really interesting. Just those moments of like leadership clicking and kind of Emma doing a bad thing and then uh, seeing almost immediately what she did wrong and then working for atonement kind of, but in a very like low key, still very prideful way. 
That's that's a very Emma Frost way to do it. Yeah. Uh, the one the one other thing I want to mention is just a sidebar in this uh, story. Emma Frost tries to make breakfast <laughs> in this one. I love it, <laughs> guys. Emma Frost can't cook. I love her she, so much. <laughs> Emma Frost don't know how to cook. She put ketchup in cook. omelets. <laughs> it was bad. I know there's people who like put ketchup on eggs, but they're also wrong, and we shouldn't be taking cooking lessons from them. <laughs> Emma, girl, you got to do better. It's breakfast. It's the simplest thing. I'm teaching my three-year-old how to do breakfast, and he's, you know, <laughs> we still don't touch them around fire, but I think he's getting close to better than you, Em. <laughs> God, yeah, that was one of the most delightful parts. There's a kind of a lot of uh, delightful and surprisingly moving moments of this story. It's Lobdell has a lot of faults. Yes, uh, <laughs> as a person and as yeah. a writer. <laughs> he on you know, Generation X, he does shine at those human moments, and it's something that I really do enjoy reading. Yeah, I thought that this was a great story. I don't know it. It's such a strange one because it's kind of just like before, right before Generation X kind of starts to turn, I believe, like if there's like different creative teams start coming in and direction mm-hmm. completely changes course. Uh, a lot of the characters change, their like cast changes a little bit. All of those things happen, you know, uh, Chris leaves the Pretty book. Pretty soon after this. <laughs> yeah, not too long after this. And so this tonally is so strange. If you read it from, you know, if you read the first 25 issues of Generation X, it seems so bizarre, but it also fits with the theme really well because you're starting to see it's kind of, a, uh, yeah, like you're, all of everybody's personalities gets revealed after we've seen. We have our first interactions with everybody, which is everybody being like, hey, Emma, you're a jerk and we don't want to do what you say and like that kind of stuff. And Emma just being like, you know, a total badass. But then you have this where, you know, she she really fails and, you know, she's put up against Banshee a little bit and he forgives her, you know, like everybody forgives her in this. And I think it's uh, kind of a beautiful story. It's it's good. I was really excited to... uh you know, pick up on this thing that I had just not read. Mm-hmm. Don't know how I missed it. Uh, but it's good. Now, how do you think it compares to something like number 99 on this list, Generation X number four, Between the Cracks? That is the uh, Christmas oh, story. Oh, I know. A- Elliot. Um, oh, yeah, that one's... Gosh. Now, that one's got uh, upcoming X-Men classified story character Orphan Maker in it. Ah, Yes. Orphan Maker, this just heartbreaking character, um, <laughs> like terrible and heartbreaking all in one. But um, yeah, I don't know. I think that honestly, I prefer this one almost because, mm-hmm. but I love that that other story as well. But I think that I preferred this one just because it's a little bit more developed, right? Like I think that right. that one takes on kind of that moralistic, like Christmassy kind of feel, which I love that stuff, but I can... You know, sometimes I can take it or leave it. This, I think, was just so weird. <laughs> it really sticks out for me a lot. If I was going to look back at the entire first run of Generation X, obviously you can't really touch those first three issues, but I think I would put this above that story as much as I love that story. I think that's fair. I think we're in the right area because yeah. just a few spots above it is Captain America. 367, which is that time that uh, Magneto puts Red Skull in a hole. Yes. 
And I think that one that one's a little better. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we're right in the right spot. I think number ninety seven we have Murder at the Mansion. Yeah. Uh, which is another actually really good Emma Frost story. Yeah. That's where we get her backstory and some other stuff. For me, that one works a tiny bit better. Sure, sure. Yeah, but I, I mean, think... she's she's more a little, you know, there's control. Like, here she's, like, slightly out of control. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, it can't be the best example of Emma. But in that way, I think that that's why, like, the leadership commentary was so interesting. Because you see her at her very, like, lowest ebb, kind of, and still trying. Um, but, yeah, I think I would agree with you. I think I think it can go just right under that, right above all new dupe mm-hmm. to be our new number ninety eight. Oh, that's such though. a good story too. <laughs> all new all new dupe is interesting. We did a uh, episode with uh, Doctor Stephanie Burt uh, where oh, yeah. we talked about that story. Yeah, and uh, Stephanie made me see all new dupe in a very different way. It was a story I had liked, and I came out of our discussion liking it even more. Yeah, totally excellent. I have to listen to that. No, it's a it's a good one. Uh, much like our last story that we're going to talk about, this is a story that when we suggested it, I forgot that I was going to have to read about twelve issues of comics. Right, but... I did the same thing. I had to go. I did some skimming, but I read it. I did like a deep read before. Uh, this is X Men Red. The, we're just going to call it the whole series, uh, <laughs> written by Tom Taylor, with art by Mahmoud Asar, uh, Carmen Canero. Uh, Rose Antonio and Pascal Alexi. This is this is this is a pretty good one, right? This is the Jean Grey book. Yeah, I mean it's like you know Jean Grey starring some other X Men, but it's essentially the Jean Grey book. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I mean it is. Yeah. Which is fair. Jean had been dead forever. I'm yeah. As like, I mean, I'm a huge Jean Grey fan, and I have. It's one of those things where you just settle into it, where you're just like yeah, she's going to be dead for about 10 years. <laughs> like, we're not going to get any new Jean stories. Um, I'm so glad that they came out punching on this one, though, because I feel like this story, uh, you know, has, it's like, it's ups and downs as like a story, as being like a cohesive plot or whatever. But it nails Jean's character. It definitely gets her. That is, that is the number one thing that it gets right. Absolutely. It, it knows Jean Taylor has such a clear voice for her being a very compassionate but motivated and you know strong leader. Yeah. In this, Jean has a big heart, mm-hmm. uh, not necessarily the most she she's the mutant that didn't have to deal with M Day, and she's the mutant that didn't have to deal with all of the MPOC stuff and the constant threat of genocide. Mm-hmm. She didn't have that, so she has a different perspective than everyone else and jean's untouchable like that's kind of the thing always with her is like even if she had lived through that stuff she has her own life death cycle (laughs) going on like anything that's like you know outside of her never seems to really touch her Mm. jean operates on a bit of a different level than everyone else absolutely yeah she really does and we see a lot of that here the the other thing that this story does well and i want to throw this right at the front uh, the art in this, mm-hmm. uh, especially the stuff that uh, Asar and uh, Carmen do, yeah, blew my mind at the time. I knew Mahmoud was an excellent artist, but he he did a fantastic job opening this. I was afraid about someone following that up, and uh, Carmen Canero 
just jumps on the scene, makes a huge splash, so much that they say, oh, no, uh, this book's going to get canceled. We want you to relaunch uh, Captain Marvel right away. Can you come do that, please? <laughs> yeah. I think the art is beautiful. I also really like Jean's redesign here. I think that it's really a good look for her. I'm It didn't have to stick around forever, you know? Um, there was, like, a 90s costume that I think is comparable where she had, like, a headband and stuff, and I was like... Yeah, the, the Jim Lee one. Yeah, that one's great. Um, I'm kind of glad that it didn't stick around for that long, I guess. Um, but, yeah, it's kind of... For me, I thought her look was really good here, um, and that's, you know, that's definitely a hit-and-miss thing with those Summer's Grey folks. <laughs> they can have a... It is. They sometimes have the For best costumes, and other times you're like, what's happening, I wonder? <laughs> For me, the costume's not my favorite. Uh-huh. Uh, I, I, I I hate that Ghibli costume. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think it's t- so evoking that is not going to win nostalgia points for me. Right, right. I, I know there's a lot of people that love it. And the challenge with Jean is her best costume is also associated with uh, you know, committing light genocide. Yeah. Uh, so that one's a tough one to wear around. Oh, yeah. You can't wear that out. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I'm i sure you saw it going around the internet. But uh, the Build-A-Bear Workshop Company uh, does have a Phoenix Force bear wearing the Jean Grey costume. <laughs> I emailed their press release people. <laughs> Asking them for comment about having their brand associated with a creature that caused the genocide of the Dabari people. <laughs> uh, they did not respond to my oh, comment. No. That is a true story. I have the receipts. Yeah, I believe you 100%. I'm sure that they have no idea what you're even talking about. <laughs> it was the day before Thanksgiving. I was bored at work and just kind of running through till the end of uh, lunch when I could safely leave with no one giving me a dirty yeah. look. <laughs> I always wonder about that because that's so many characters these days. Like you have like, you know, Funko of like the Joker and you're like, that guy kills a lot of people. I wonder, (laughs) I wonder how you reconcile with that DC. And they're like, we don't even think about it. (laughs) It's like, cool. He makes us money. That's all that (laughs) we, we can make Joker uh, rip off a Martin Scorsese film and make a billion dollars. So we're not really listening. Not too concerned is how we feel about it. Um, (laughs) But back to X-Men Red, um, I think I go through this comic and I think it's fascinating because for the longest time we have, you know, Jean Grey, she's gone. Everybody gets to mourn her, but nobody, you know, gets her. We don't really hear anything from her. Once again, the Mm -hmm. biggest problem with Jean, we always see her through other people's eyes. And this was fascinating because this was one of the only times where Jean fully takes the narration and she's the person who's talking. So to me, that's just like in and of itself, that is massive because you look at you know dark phoenix saga like all of these stories like we love gene like i love gene this is like one of my favorite fictional characters ever but Mm -hmm. almost always the way that we see her is what does somebody else think of what gene's doing right now like we almost never see it first person from her so i loved seeing that because we actually to me i got i think we got a much more um like we saw how compassionate she really is because we we associate this character with empathy a lot, but we don't look at that. We don't really see that much about it. So to hear it was interesting just to see her always be thinking about other people and always be thinking, well, I know what Xavier would do and I know what Scott would do. I know what Wolverine would do. You know, I know what Storm would do. And here's what I would do. And what Jean wants to do, of course, immediately is to build bridges talk to people outside of the X-Men, try to make all of these 
connections with people, you know, bring people in. And that's how she would, you know, fight for, you know, the rights and for like, you know, all of the things that they fight for. The way that she would fight is by trying to make bridges and trying to make connections. And I think that that was really beautiful just as a theme for the entire series. I think that really works for Jean. Mm -hmm. Where I think Taylor struggles a bit is in how he executes some of the big ideas he has. Yeah. There's, there's a lot of there's a lot of good ideas in here. Yeah. Uh, bringing Cassandra Nova back yes. as the centerpiece villain for both a story about hate and how hate impacts yes. people. And a story about a giant telepath who's been uh, gone for a while. Like, that works. I get that. That's, a that's you know, round peg, round hole yeah, for that. Yeah, I get, like, goosebumps thinking about that. I think it's so, that's such a good touch. I think the challenge comes from a couple of things. One, Taylor repeats a few of the exact same plot beats in this yep. 11, 12 issue story a lot. Mm-hmm. He has, Gene has to fight Storm who's been possessed. Right. And then Gene has to fight Rachel who's been possessed. Yep. And then it's big showdown with Cassandra Nova. And we get that three issues in a row. Uh-huh. Totally. And it's like, he he doesn't have the pacing of this tied down. And I don't think all of that is... I, I I think there are some reasons for that. Yes. Obviously, this book got cut down yep. uh, to lead into the Hawkspox stuff and all of that. Yeah. Uh, which meant that I think Taylor had to adjust his story, probably stretched out a bit more than he wanted to, which would explain some of the sudden starts and stops. Yes, because you look at all new X-Men, and that is like to what I would consider to be an almost perfectly plotted book. Like they, it's It fills its exact amount of issues so well, right? But this, yeah, you're right. Like, there's tons of starts and stops. And you can just kind of get the sense through the entire thing that the whole time he's like, this Jean Grey book is going to get canceled, right? <laughs> like, we're we're not going to be able to keep running with this, right? Right. Yeah. Which, which is a bit disappointing. I think it doesn't give enough time to some of the other characters mm-hmm. because of that. Because, well, this was Jean's story, which makes sense. Yeah. Let Jean have the spotlight on her first story in 15 15- years the the other thing that i think is a bit of a challenge with this is taylor tries to tie this into a lot of present day issues Mm -hmm. uh which which is good and smart and says a lot but he has a worldview on this that well everyone's being controlled by cassandra nova to hate and if we can just fix that then we're uh we're all going to be fine and i compare that to something like the uh the wonder woman movie Mm -hmm. Where the whole plot was, well, let's get rid of Ares and then people won't suck anymore. Right. Like, oh, we can and just blame Ares for WW2. <laughs> and that's the the most heartbreaking part of Wonder Woman for me was when she realizes, oh, people suck all on their own. Yeah. And frankly, not to get too heavy, but uh, within the last three-ish years... I think a lot of people have had to come to the realization that a bunch of people just plain suck. Mm-hmm. Definitely. <laughs> it, it, that's not fun. That's not a pleasant superhero story. Right. Uh, so well, it's a bit more optimistic than I am, which sure. puts me at odds with it a little bit. Yeah, and I think that that's what, I mean, to me, that's something where when you talk about Storm being one of the most difficult characters to write, I think that we can pretty fairly rank Gene in that list, too, because oh, I yeah. think people have a really hard time with that the idea of somebody who's so compassionate but who also 
has a terrible knowledge of how awful everything really is because she sees mm-hmm. and you see that you know there's that issue with onslaught where Jean um and onslaught have that like showdown and uh she hears everything that every everybody's thinking about her and everybody's thinking really mean things about her <laughs> and she knows that all of the time you know and to me that's like you know, if we're going to talk about anything that failed in this series, it would have to be that, you know, Jean knows that part of humanity and maybe Tom Taylor doesn't, I guess. Um, mm-hmm. Because there's no way that that surprises Jean, you know, like hate doesn't surprise Jean. Magneto was trying to murder her when she was like 15, you know, <laughs> like she's she's been around the block, I'll say. Um, so to me, it's kind of it's interesting to read this back again because i agree exactly with what you're saying and i think that like you know you have those moments that stand out to me and one of those things was uh you know when storm is possessed like you know i would have loved actually just to see storm and gene hanging out for once but storm comes out as being uh possessed and she's like you know yelling at gene and i remember one of the characters basically is just like look, if we don't put her down, then a lot of people are going to die. And then Jean just goes, well, then a lot of people are going to die because I'm not going to hurt my friend and kind of goes outside, mm-hmm. talks to Storm. And to me, like that prioritization, it's like that's a selfish choice in a way, but it's the right choice. And so Jean doesn't always be perfect either. <laughs> like, you know, right. she made a wrong choice that worked out in a really great way in this. Um, but yeah, I think that, Everything you say is true, you know, like there there is kind of a naive sense to this story because she does very much just kind of go, well, I'm back from the dead now. And like, I didn't go through all the stuff that you guys did. So I'm going to take over from here, you know, <laughs> which is all like good, because once again, we haven't seen Jean in forever at this point. We really want right. to see a Jean story. Um, and it is a gene story, 100%. But also there is definitely that that side of it where. You know, there is a little bit of Cassandra Nova in Gene, too. You know, Gene also has a very dark side, and we don't see that much of that here at all. No, it's a... I'm critical about this story, but I really enjoy it. Yeah, it's so fun. I I mean, it's so good. And just those little character beats are great. What what I'd compare it to, and this is going to sound like a weird comparison, uh, but hold with me, folks. (laughs) At number 62 on the list right now is New X-Men 146 to 150, Planet X. Also the story where Gene dies, now that I say that out loud. Which is a well-crafted story with some significant challenges associated (laughs) with it. I think this is better than Planet X. I think it has to be better than Planet X because Gene's actually given autonomy in this. And that's so rare Mm -hmm. for her. I, I definitely agree with that. Where I'm struggling is pushing it too much higher. Uh, like at number 54 on our list right now is X-Men Season 1. Yeah. Uh, another really great Jean Grey so story. So good, yeah. That I think is a bit more cohesive and delivers on its objective a little bit better sure. than X-Men Red Yeah, does. if you're going to talk about just a solid plot, then yeah, definitely. I would I would agree with you. Uh. I probably I probably have to put this above what if Wolverine was Lord of the Vampires, right? Like, <laughs> Ooh, this, rough, this but yeah, you're right, that. you're right. Yeah, I think it has uh, to. It's, it's better than that. This is better than uh, this is better than X Men '92 Battle yep, World, definitely. Mm. 
And I'd probably say it's better than X-Men Legacy 208 210. I think so too. Uh, from Genesis to Revelation. So I guess right under season one now that I say yep, that. Yep, I think it's going to have to be. And season one is like, yeah, just basically a little bit of a, uh, just like a tighter story, I guess. And kind of gives you that backstory. It also gives Gene a lot of agency though. So yeah, I'm, I'm all for it, that And it's one. also got that Jamie McKelvey art. Mmm, yeah, so art. good. Yeah, you're right, you're right. Now, Sarah, I can't tell you the last time we had three stories in the top 100 in an episode. They're all uh, good ones. Yeah, this was enjoyable. I'm <laughs> glad uh, we got to cover it. Yes. Uh, so I guess, first off, Sarah, thank you so much for being on this episode. Yes. It I'm, was a ton of fun. I'm so glad you asked me. I Listen, I caught the Banshee one most recently, I think. So I listen to the mm-hmm. podcast, you know, fairly regularly. So it's really good to be on. I, I love this show. Well, thank you. That's nice to hear. Now, uh, if people want to check out what you're doing, uh, why don't you give us a plug for Bitches on Comics? Yeah, um, Bitches on Comics, which is the podcast I do with S.E. Fleenor. Uh, We're both writers and we both love talking about comics. We answer questions. So if you have any, you know, X-Men questions or questions about comics in general that aren't being addressed by the many other podcasts that exist in this world, then you can ask them to us. Um, and you can find us, you know, we're on all of the platforms and we have bitches on comics.com, of course. So any of those places, we also have a Patreon. If you want to subscribe to that, we have extended issues for our patrons. Um, yeah, so all that's really good. Well, that's good. That's good. Uh, speaking of Patreon, if you uh, liked this episode and you want us to do a whole episode about some of your stuff, uh, you can go on over to patreon.com slash Files. I said at this top of the show, just go re-listen to that. It's the same spiel, but now instead of then. <laughs> uh, if you uh, like uh, some of the other stuff, you can go on over to XavierFiles.com. That's where we store all the episodes. We also have write-ups of all of the X-Men books that are coming out by some incredibly talented writers. Yes, those are uh, those are really good. Yeah, I, here's here's what you do. You surround yourself by really talented people, <laughs> and then you tell them to do work, and then you put it on your website, and you get the credit if people <laughs> like it. Yeah, those are excellent. Highly recommend well, good. Thank you. Uh, one other housekeeping note for the Xavier Files Media Empire, our spinoff podcast, Boko No X Anime, uh, is currently on an indefinite hiatus, uh, which is, I get, we just had a hiatus announcement on Battle of the Atom recently. This one is absolutely, I, I can't say why we have to put it on hiatus uh, for a little bit, but is absolutely the best possible reason that we could have to put a podcast on hiatus uh so no tears from that uh no big anime tears uh, this is just where we're at and it's a good uh good situation but we're going to be continuing here with battle of the atom uh i guess sarah where can people find you if they uh, liked your brand and want to uh you know learn more you're gonna want to check out sarahcentury.com because i am always doing something new and kind of ambitious so um i also am just i'm writing for so many different websites so you kind of have to follow me there um also i'm on twitter and instagram both awesome well that this has been great uh, next week folks we have uh i don't want to call them a nemesis <laughs> uh but definitely someone that 
puts me at odds with the fact that we have to be the second or third most popular <laughs> X-Men podcast. Uh, Miles Stokes is going to be on, and we are going to talk about some dinosaur stuff. Oh, yeah, that's going to be, be such a good... I am... Here's the spoilers. I am jumping off of this recording and then going to the recording with him. <laughs> so it's going to be seamless for me, uh, and I'm very excited about that. Yes. Uh, but one last time, Sarah, thank you so much. Oh, yeah, of course. Uh, been a blast yes uh and we'll we'll chat some other time yeah. but until then this has been battle of the atom we hope you survived the experience